You're listening to The Cutting Edge, presented by Hilleberg the Tentmaker. Hi, I'm Petra Hilleberg, President and CEO of Hilleberg the Tentmaker. My dad, Bo Hilleberg, a lifelong outdoorsman, founded Hilleberg 50 years ago, and we've been family-owned, family-operated, and European-made ever since. We proudly specialize in building strong, lightweight tents and in never compromising on quality of materials or construction. Our tents have been specifically chosen by polar expeditions, mountaineers, backpackers, and avid outdoor adventurers just like you all over the world. We build tents for everyone's adventure. Additional support is provided by Polar Tech, bringing you the science of fabric, and Gnarly Nutrition, fueling, educating, and inspiring athletes at all levels, and by Loa Boots, crafting premium footwear for the mountains and beyond since 1923. This is Dougal McDonald, editor of the American Alpine Journal, the AHA. I started climbing in 1978, the same year that Peter Boardman published The Shining Mountain, a classic book about one of the great climbs of the 1970s, Changabang's West Face. Joe Tasker, who hatched the idea of climbing Changabang, later wrote his own book, The Savage Arena, and for any young climber with dreams of the Himalaya, there was nothing more inspiring. So good was their writing that Britain's highest prize for climbing literature is named for the two of them, the Boardman Tasker Award. Sir Chris Bonington and a powerful British team made the first ascent of Changabang in India's Garhwal Himalaya in 1974. But it was the incredible profile of the West Face that captured the imagination. Boardman and Tasker threw out the rule book for their climb, and Bonington told them it's a preposterous plan. Still, if you do get up it, it'll be the hardest thing that's been done in the Himalayas. 46 years later, on May 2nd of this year, a trio of climbers from New Zealand and Australia, Dan Joel, Kim Latigus, and Matt Scholes, stood on top of Changabang after finally repeating the West Face. Our interview with Dan and Matt will follow shortly. But first, I wanted to get a sense of what the climb meant to alpinists back in the 1970s. So I chatted with Lindsey Griffin, the AHA's longtime senior editor, who was just about to launch his own expeditionary career when Boardman and Tasker climbed the West Ridge. So, in 1976, when Boardman and Tasker climbed the West Face of Changabang, you were just a lad, right? I was. Were you I already going a... on expeditions at that time, or did that come 76. later? I went on one trip when I was actually very young. I went to Greenland uh, when I was really quite young. Uh, but I didn't then go to the uh, Himalaya or outside of Europe, really, till 77, which was the uh, the following year, which was the uh, the big road trip with Venables on the... Uh, on the magic bus across <laughs> across to Afghanistan. <laughs> so that was uh, wow. yeah, that was my first that was my first trip then. Yeah. Well, obviously though the the big ranges were on your radar. Uh, had you already begun reporting on no. climbing and expeditions no. at that point, or did that, that come that much came later? Quite a lot later. Yeah, yeah. Right. Well, the reason I was asking is I'm sort of wondering what impact the news and photos 
from Changapang, Changabang had on climbers of that era, like yourself, especially British climbers. I mean, did it seem sort of astonishing at the time or just another big climb? Can I, um, can I sort of waffle around this a little bit? Because <laughs> um, I, I think it's worth, uh, I don't know, I think it's worth in my mind looking at the background in a way, in the sense that when Chris and Doug, you know, went to Changabang in 1974, I think, uh, you know, they, they went to climb the West Face. That's what they went to do because they had mm. photographs of it and it looked like, you know, like a really quite nice objective, you know, a bit of rock and stuff. And when they got there, they, they were just absolutely horrified, you know, by what they saw. <laughs> I mean, and they had people like, you know, Martin Boyson with them who were probably the best sort of alpine rock climbers of the day, really. And, and you know, he, he, he just said he'd never seen anything like it outside of Patagonia. So and to go back slightly, um, Joe and Dick Renshaw were like in the early 70s. Well, right from the beginning of the 70s onwards. Well, I suppose, you know, the for, one of the foremost kind of partnerships of that era and they did a lot i mean it it kind of is a bit forgotten now so long ago but they did a load of major alpine routes you know at very early ascents or you know how in those days there was a big emphasis on first national ascents you know the french right. the first french ascent that was part of the guidebook you know first ascent first french ascent. same with the first british ascents and they did a lot of first british ascents of pretty major stuff in the alps particularly big kind of um, north faces, uh, you know, mixed ice north faces. So they went to, on their first trip, they which was 75, they went to Dunagiri, which is a 7,000-metre mm-hmm. peak just to, the, um, just to the east of uh, Changabang and uh, did this route that I think got pretty overlooked, really, down through the ages. I mean, it, it was 11 days alpine style up this bridge uh, was pre- a pretty good achievement, actually. And, of course, they were right opposite the west face of Changabang, and they had pretty good views of it. And Joe walked down past it at the end and decided that, you know, they were going to have a go. Um, but, of course, Dick had got frostbite mm-hmm. on that trip and uh, couldn't go. So Joe asked Boardman, who he'd never actually climbed with before but knew, and, you know, they were basically told they never get up it. So uh, by, you know, most most people. So coming round to your question, I suppose, I think most people at the time considered it was the most advanced lightweight climb that had been achieved in the Himalaya at that stage. A bit like, like if you go back 20 years before that, Mustang Tower. Mustang Tower was probably the most mm. advanced, lightweight type of climbing. And I don't know, did it? Of course, the information was, you know, a lot less uh, accessible then. But uh, did it? Uh, did it affect people? Yeah, for sure, it affected people because you've only got to look round the corner and look at Voitex climb on the south face of Changban, which was undoubtedly a harder route 
which was done two years later. And I'm sure, you know, they influenced the decision to, uh, you know, to go on to that war. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, the same year, 76, um, you know, they were doing Trango. Trango mm. was pretty technical big wall um, for that time, technical big wall. Sure. But, but obviously much lower and mm-hmm. the conditions. Warmer. More yeah. Warmer, yeah, warmer. They're yeah. climbing it in the summer, you know, whereas, you know, Pete and Joe were climbing it in October. Um, pretty cold stuff, really. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting that AAJ only did a short report, maybe one page on, on Changavang at the time. Um, and I wonder if that was just sort of the style of the publication at the time, or if they, if people didn't understand its significance or even sort of what was going on <laughs> over there at the time. So Boardman wrote an article in Mountain Magazine, but mm-hmm. it wasn't, he wrote like, he wrote like a history of Changabang to that time so mm. th- their west face was just part of this article and it was you know sl- i mean it was an abbreviated version really of the full story uh, so you don't really get the full story until you know he writes his book that's interesting yeah and it would be so different today of course it would be massively different today massively different today but um and you know they, they were they were just they were you know they were back from that and then they were planning their next great adventure because in those days the, there wasn't a lot of consolidation you know at the top end people kind of almost up the ante a bit each year mm-hmm. uh, so i think i can't I think they were going for k2 or something there's a k2 trip the next year or something like that yeah i suppose now with decades of hindsight i mean where do you think that the west face of changabang sort of fits into the history of Himalayan climbing. Can we say that it really broke new ground or were there was it just sort of one among many in that era? It's always um that's always a difficult one to answer, isn't it? But I think it was I think that and Trango were probably the first you know in quotations, big wall climbing in the mm-hmm. uh, in the Himalaya of, of you know that sort of difficulty. You know, they realized as, as you know, they realized they uh there were no real bivouac sites on that wall, so they they got these specially designed hammocks to try and use, which were proved to be useless actually. But um, <laughs> you know, na- I mean, sort of that's the sort of thing where nowadays perhaps uh, you know of climbing at the speed that they were, which is obviously slower than today. Uh, it's where obviously a porter ledge or something like that would have made things. Mm-hmm. Uh, massively easier, but that kind of technology wasn't wasn't there then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, a lot of technology wasn't there then. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think certainly, um, you know, there were good rock climbers. I mean, uh, uh, Borman was a good rock climber. Joe was good and very pushy. Um, mm-hmm. So there were good rock climbers. Uh, they, you know, ice climbing. They were at the stage. That ice climbing was then, which is you know, a lot, 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 lot lower than it is today. So, um, you know, uh, it, it probably suited their abilities more. You know, mm-hmm. they were tough guys who could uh, survive that sort, those sort of pretty hostile conditions, really. And 
get themselves up a piece of very steep, difficult rock and all the mixed bits and stuff that were thrown in. But hmm. Well, thank you, sir. Oh, you're, you're welcome. I hope you can uh, edit something out of that. <laughs> now, before we get to our interview with Dan and Matt, let's hear a few messages from the Cutting Edge supporting team. Harness, check. Chalk bag, check. Grid fleece, check. For over 30 years, climbers have checked their gear list to make sure they packed Polar Tech. We love Polar Tech fabrics for their lightweight warmth, quick drying performance, and ease of movement. Found in iconic apparel pieces of legendary outdoor players, Polar Tech remains an essential piece of climbing equipment. You probably have one in your closet right now. Whether you wear your pullover or use it as a pillow, Polar Tech helps bring a bit of comfort to the crag. Polar Tech is the science of fabric. Born in Utah's Wasatch Mountains, Gnarly Nutrition is committed to fueling, educating, and inspiring athletes at all levels. Gnarly provides honest, effective, and great-tasting nutrition that is third-party tested. Gnarly's full line features science-backed products free of hormones, GMOs, proprietary blends, or anything artificial. Add Gnarly Nutrition to your training regime to help you send. Use code AAC20 for 20% off site-wide at gonarly.com. Loa Boots began as a village cobbler in Bavaria in 1923. Almost 100 years later, Loa is still based in that village and is still building boots and shoes in Europe under the world's most stringent environmental and labor standards. From mountaineering and ice climbing boots to rock climbing shoes, hiking boots, and lightweight trail shoes, Loa is recognized worldwide for the uncompromising quality, fit, and comfort that make Loa Boots simply more. Now, here's Dan Joel and Matt Scholes, interviewed by AAJ assistant editor Michael Levy in mid-June. Enjoy. Daniel Joel and Matt Scholes, thanks for joining me today on the Cutting Edge podcast to talk about your guys and Kim Ladigas's, uh first repeat of the West Wall on Changabang in India. It's really big. It's really steep. It's almost 7,000 meters high. Um, and a lot of other teams have tried on it in the past and not managed to get up. So um, kudos to you guys. It, it looks, the pictures make it look like it was a pretty phenomenal climb. How did this team come together? How did you three meet? We, do you want me to start, Matty? On the, yeah, you go. Maybe. Yeah, I, I first met Matt in Patagonia. Probably I camped at Rio Blanco maybe 10, 12 years ago. And yeah, from there, we just slowly started to join up for different trips around the world. And eventually on one of those trips in Alaska, when we were at 14 Camp on Denali, we bumped into Kim. And that sort of started the next leg of that partnership where the three of us together started climbing in different places around the world and then climbing with either one or other or as a three. And we sort of went went from there. And Dan and Matt, you are both members of the New Zealand Alpine team, you two and Kim, all three of you. So can you tell me a little bit about the New Zealand Alpine team, what that is for people who don't know know about it? The New Zealand Alpine team, it's a group of climbers, essentially. So we, we run the team as in sort of two parts. The first part would be a mentoring program where every three years we we bring in a bunch of new climbers from New Zealand and sometimes Australia, and we will put them on a structured mentoring program for mountaineering. 
and that will involve ice climbing, big walling, climbing at altitude. And we generally speaking try and pair those new members of the team up with one of the experienced climbers from the group so they'll have a mentor and that's part of what Matt, Kim and myself do within the team. We're mentors for the team so we'll help out those those new members and then the other quite important part of the team and one of the main reasons we set it up for ourselves was to have a an excuse to meet up regularly with climbers we liked and climbers who we knew and competent climbers from New Zealand and Australia because it wasn't really happening before we set that team structure up. So now we meet up with most of the team at least once a year. We climb together regularly and out of those regular meetings and climbing trips together, we've we've had some really successful expeditions that have sort of been dotted along over the last 10 years since we since we got it going. Is there a uh, rivalry between the New Zealand climbers and the Australian climbers on the team, or it's all, it's all, it's all good? No, I think the Australian climbers feel happy to be there, so because <laughs> there's, there's not really anything for for us in Australia that's like that. So, yeah, no, no real rivalry, I wouldn't say. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So, for Changabang, whose idea was it? to go try this route and how long has it been in the works? I think it might have been my idea, maybe. Um, Matt says it wasn't his because he said, oh, when you when you asked about it, I'll, I was keen to go. Um, I think it was so your idea to climb Changabang, but um, maybe Kim's yeah. idea to climb the West Ridge. I think he, yeah. Because there was talk about doing the north face, but I think Kim was really set on the West Ridge, and and then kind of got me psyched on it eventually. Yeah, yeah. I think the appeal for the north face became a bit less after the French team repeated it, and they uh, the French EMHM team did it like kind of a quick repeat, sort of in the style we had been thinking about climbing. And so. That was in 2018, I believe, right? Then when that French trio did it, 20, oh, maybe even a yeah, the year before all the COVID stuff started. <laughs> so you guys had been already thinking about this uh, about Changabang as a objective back then. Yeah, we were. Yeah. yeah, we were we were booked and ready to go before all the pandemic things kicked off, and it got cancelled right at the last minute. Oh, heartbreaker. Um, I guess that that was kind of a common story for a couple of years there. And now this last year, we've been seeing a lot of expeditions rise from the ashes, I guess. So, um, but yeah, that's got to be hard sitting on those plans for a while. Um, yeah. For Changabang, the pictures, I mean, it, it's beautiful. It's, it's right near Nanda Devi. It's this huge soaring mountain. But can you set the scene a little for us? Um, where exactly is it and what makes it such an alluring and difficult target? It, it, well, it's in the Indian Himalayas, obviously. Um, I think one of the things that makes it so difficult is is the approach. Um, so, yeah, like from base camp, you can't actually see the mountain. Um, and then, yeah, the, the, the approach is... It's only it's about ten k's, but it's all moraine and, and glacier, and a lot of it's usually covered in snow. 
with lots of holes in the snow. <laughs> Just extremely slow going, um, especially your first time up there and while you're trying to acclimatise and kind of navigate your way through with heavy bags and and all that, yeah. And we, I think we found the approach quite difficult because we, from reading all the Boardman Tasker accounts and because other teams hadn't got very high on the route, we were kind of taking equipment for every scenario. So we had heaps of cams, heaps of wires, heaps of pitons, heaps of aid climbing, like, you know, your aid gear. We had two portal ledges, a tent, and you're not sure how many days food and water you need, and you've got to lug that 10 kilometres up a really tough kind of tricky moraine and glacier, and then it just took a lot of days and a lot of grind and sort of, yeah, falling in the holes in the snow every afternoon when it was soft just to get established and get even a look up at the route and be under the mountain and be ready to go. Brutal. So you mentioned Boardman and Tasker there. You obviously couldn't ask them about this climb for beta on it because they've died six years after their climb on Everest. Um, so you had to rely on their readings, other reports, other teams' efforts. Um, what did you glean from their books and their reports and Alpine journals and such? Any any key knowledge from them or others who have tried their route since? Oh, it, was, it was really hard to know what to make of. Like, obviously, they had the book, but um, it was really hard to know what to make of that um, just because the the time when the route was done, you know, like they didn't even have cams. So you're reading about a pitch that took them all day to climb, but then you, you they they were doing it with pitons. So, you know, you kind of you know, you're trying to assess whether like, you know, you, you, you might just be able to plug in cams or, or and you look at different things with different eyes, I think, in with modern day climbing techniques like I think they avoided ice where, you know, for us these days, like an ice runner would be something that's quick and easy to climb where they would have just like pendulumed across and climbed more rock. So, yeah. Another funny thing, we we were trying to work out the the altitude um, of of all these different camps and then we later on read in the book that – that their altimeter had stopped working <laughs> and they were just looking at other <laughs> mountains around to assess. So we kind of just scrapped that idea. It was like it was all just guesswork really. So, yeah, yeah. we weren't going to get too much detailed information out of it. I, I think we, we did one thing that did actually help us a bit is that we talked with there had been two expeditions from New Zealand go in the early 2000s to try the West Ridge and they – They'd got a little way, they'd sort of climbed up to the coal and then gone a few pitches above that, but not not particularly far. But it, it was quite good talking with those guys and hearing what they thought they did wrong in terms of their acclimatisation strategy or just general stuff-ups from the, the trip. So that that did help us where, where in particular they said, like, you know, we, we blew a lot of our expedition time acclimatising on other peaks. And by the time we got on the route, we didn't end up with a lot of good weather or, you know, they were kind of late in the trip. So we just decided that we would go get our stuff to the base of the route and then really go for it straight away. And we we went 
with the plan to be unacclimatized basically for the height of the route and we just decided to climb slowly and acclimatize as we went up the route instead of trying to go off and sleep high somewhere else on an easier peak and yeah potentially blow a week of our trip that, that we might need for for trying that that climb that seems really smart um so those those new zealand teams they tried it in the early 2000s you said i know nick bullock tried it in i think 2005 is what i saw with a small team uh some other teams have tried it but even still with um 46 years is a long time for a route of this stature to go unrepeated um obviously the north wall was a big big objective as well and when that was done in i think 97 that was that was pretty big news um but why do you think it took so long for the west wall to to get repeated what do you reckon matt i don't know well it's a second ascent it's not a first ascent so typically people care a bit less about second ascents that's um, fair and i don't i don't know why what why else it was i guess it's pretty cold route it wasn't a pleasant wall to be on <laughs> all the time that's for sure um also the fact that um i think if people could have approached from the the south side it might have got a repeat sooner but we had to because the um what is it the nadi devi century has been closed um everyone's since had to approach from the north and it's a lot more work um, um there's like yeah there's like 500 meter coal that you have to climb just to get to the base of the north or the no the west pillar yeah and the north side i think accumulates more snow and doesn't melt out as quick so people get bogged down um getting up to that coal where on the south side it probably melts out a lot quicker and is a lot easier to get to did boardman and tasker approach do the same approach as you guys? No, no. From the south, they went. Yeah, yeah. So that's through the Nanda Devi Sanctuary. Yeah, yeah. We we didn't get to see it from that classic um, angle. That's a real kind of pointy kind of pillar. Like you know, we we see it with like Kalanka off to the left, and yeah, <laughs> it's a bit less dramatic. I reckon it would have been cool to see it from the other side, but. I wasn't about to go down there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure part of why it didn't get repeated is that people chase first ascents probably over repeating something that's tricky. And that, like, even in that valley, in that valley where we were base camp, it was just endless new routes that you could go and climb on pretty nice mountains. Was, but, there, was there ever any discussion amongst the team of, like, oh, we should just go do a do a new line instead now that we're here or you guys were pretty focused no nah, we were yeah and i mean we we were specifically looking for we didn't want to go climb a big serac threatened face like we've we've climbed routes like that previously and it we were kind of wanting to go do something that would be challenging but not exceptionally dangerous mm. so we were we liked the fact that you know there's not so many places to get avalanched off that wall there's a few but not heaps, and that's you could spend most of the time worrying about the climbing instead of worrying about the objective danger. So Boardman and Tasker climbed during the fall. 
you guys climbed during the spring. Um, what was the decision making behind that? Was the one <laughs> Tim Tim McCartney Snape? He was he was the one that recommended the spring, and I don't think we'd we'd all. I've always been to the him. I think we'd always been to the Himalayas, like in um, like October November in the post monsoon, and I don't know if yeah. Tim had been there a lot. That he was one of his first expeditions, and he said the spring was better, so thought we'd give it a go. Yeah, I think because I think we thought it might be warmer, maybe. As well. <laughs> like I, I, <laughs> I thought it might be warmer. It was bloody freezing. So you said you didn't want to waste time uh, acclimatizing on lower peaks when you got there. Um, you guys had a pretty robust plan to be able to make the most of your time, which included quite a bit of prep in Europe, right? Yeah, so ba- basically we spent five weeks climbing in Chamonix before going to India. And part of that was, you know, doing winter routes on Mont Blanc or stuff on the Drew and lots of other peaks around that 4,000-metre mark in Chamonix. And it was kind of, we hoped we'd be pre-acclimatised to base camp height, basically, which is 4,600 metres. And we we hoped that by the five weeks of you know, regular mountain days in Chamonix, we could arrive to base camp and basically instead of having to rest a bit and relax and adjust to the height, we could just get into the work. And and it, it worked really well. Basically, we arrived, we had no, I don't know if we any of us really suffered any altitude headaches or issues or problems and we just, it was still hard, like it's still always hard work when you go up to 5,000 or 6,000 metres the first time on a trip. But I think it worked. Yeah, it worked out really well, basically. Yeah, yeah. The, the and then, trekking, oh yeah. Oh, the trekking's only two days up to um, like to base camp, so you gain a lot of altitude really quick. And I think without pre acclimatizing, we would have all just been been wrecked. You know, if you'd just come from sea level, yeah. And it seems like it seems like if you had wanted to acclimatize on nearby objectives, there's just not a ton that's super easy probably to to gain altitude right oh i I, I think there is that you can just hike uphill from behind camp there's lots of you know you could go quite high but like there's so much work involved in just getting to the base of the route if you spend a week kind of adjusting behind base camp and acclimatizing up there then you still you you're nowhere near even the start of the route so and there's a heap of work involved in that. So I think, yeah, that's kind of what we're thinking. You, yeah. you could definitely do that, Michael. Like you could definitely go and acclimatise near base camp, but you'd need a longer trip, and that's what we we didn't have that. So it was kind of we had to sort of get straight into it, otherwise we're going to run out of time. <laughs> right, right. So getting to advanced base camp from base camp you're that's where you're going through 10 kilometers of brutal um moraine right and then to get to the true base of the route you still have to ascend onto this ridge um below the wall correct correct and so so boardman and tasker uh went towards this pretty obvious coal but you guys decided to 
reach the start of the most technical um, rock climbing differently? How, what, where did you guys go and how did that decision come about? Yeah, I mean, uh, Matt should probably answer it because it was his idea. So <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I disagreed with him strongly at the start. So that's probably not good for me to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, so, so there's kind of the, a, a long call um, leading up to the base of the West Ridge. And there's definitely like a low point in the coal. And it looks definitely like the easiest way to get up onto the coal. But then you've got like, like maybe 400 meters of ridge traversing um, just to get to the start of the really technical climbing. And if you're taking a lot of gear um, and we were, we, we kind of decided that we might haul basically like it's not, it's not going to happen along a ridge really. It's like not hauling terrain. So my idea was to start a lot further left on the north, closer to the, like on the far right hand side, I guess, of the north face. Um, and then we could haul basically from the get go. And you're just going directly up, and then when you get to the coal, you just keep going up, kind of thing. Was was my plan there, and that's kind of what we ended up doing, and it kind of worked out. So yeah. <laughs> so Dan, in hindsight, you you're a believer; it was the right way. Oh, it's definitely the right way. And at, at a distance, it looked like it would be quite difficult ice climbing to get up there. And then as soon as you get there, it's really easy. It's like 60, 70 degree snow and ice and very easy mixed climbing and it was a no-brainer that that's the the proper way to go it just it just when you're standing a few kilometers back that part of the wall looked quite steep but yeah it turned out it wasn't so very cool so so that was a pretty major variation to to the what portman tasker did it seems like um yeah on the rest of the wall or more, more so for what other attempts since had done, I guess, you know. Oh, I really? Think, oh, because yeah, Mormon and Tasker. Well, that they'd gone from the south side, but we, we were kind of, right. everyone else had tried it from the north side, and I think everyone else had gone up the easy bit. Maybe some other teams mm-hmm. had gone up the harder bit. I'm not sure, but it w- wasn't a known where everyone had mm-hmm. tried to start from. So, yeah, I think, yeah. And then... Once you guys uh, started up the steeper, more technical sections, um, did you see traces of past teams anywhere? After the first maybe five pitches, we stopped seeing any sign of other teams other than we we saw the Boardman. We could, if we passed a belay or a, a, a fixing point, because Boardman and Tasker had fixed almost the entire route with static rope. So there, there was hardly any of that left on the route, but you could always see where an old piton was. or mm-hmm. Yeah, and it was always cool. Like we were always stoked if we found one of their bits of gear. And yeah, was, that's cool. Yeah, it was nice. And we, because they were primarily looking for rock to aid up and we were just more or less trying to pick the easiest way up or what, what was easier for us. So we would often diverge and where they might have aided up a rock buttress we would climb a steep mix gully next to it because it made more sense when you're used to going mix climbing um right so, so we, the yeah so the gear and the know-how of those 46 years kind of changes little parts of of that 
prove the most logical way to go between their route and yours, it seems like. Oh, for sure. And I mean, you're both following the same feature. Mm-hmm. You're climbing more or less the same thing. It's just we might have been 30 metres to the left in an ice gully and they were on a rock buttress to the right or, yeah. Any idea um, what percentage of the train you think was, you know, exactly what they climbed and what was different or number of pitches or a rough estimate? I mean, obviously we're, we're like some guesswork half. involved. Half, okay. I, I thought 50-50 were a bit... The, the last two days I felt we were quite different to them, but then Kim thought we might have climbed some of the same pitches going to the summit because we mm-hmm. were... Did you get a surprise, Matt? Like we always, I thought we were always thinking we were going to take off the rope at some point and just walk up to the summit. Yeah, well, I think maybe three or four pictures from the top, we saw some bit of tat thing sticking out of the rock. So we must have been like pretty close to where they'd gone there. But I was surprised. I did think that we're going to, on the summit day, that we're going to just unrope at some point and just kick steps. But we ended up pitching it right to the summit and then wrapping off the summit. Like, wow, yeah. so you really got your money's worth. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's a, it was surprisingly steep right to the top, we thought. Yeah. Wow. A couple of the bigger challenges with this route um, that Boardman and Tasker faced and you guys seem to have faced as well are A, the, the just brutal cold doesn't matter fall or spring apparently and b the the lack of good bivy sites um so let's talk about the cold first it sounds it sounds like it was pretty freaking cold out there yeah i mean i think i complained constantly every day that i was because <laughs> the problem i think with the west face is it's in the shade till just after lunchtime and there's often wind in the morning and then most days around about lunchtime or just after it starts to snow. So if you, if, if the storm was late in the day and you got some sunshine, you definitely warmed up for a couple of hours, but you spent most of the day in the evening and all of, you know, everything around that really cold. And with a bit of wind, it just sort of added to it. And you yeah, you felt like you're just in a constant, suffer fest basically of trying to keep your toes and your fingers from getting frostbite matt how how'd you deal with the cold um how'd you fare yeah yeah it, it took like i had numb what well, actually we, we had i had numb thumbs from um chamonix before we we even got there and they just kind of on the week or so of approaching they kind of recovered and then by the end of the trip, though, they'd gone all a bit numb. <laughs> Dan, you were saying in terms of objective danger, you know, uh, and you wrote about this a little bit in a report you wrote. Um, you guys were looking to have an ascent with, without any epics. You want it to be smooth and safe, whether you succeeded or failed. Um, the cold seems like it was maybe could have gotten to the point where it was uh, dangerous. Did, did the cold itself ever give you guys pause? Like, well, maybe if we keep going, we're going to, we're going to lose some toes and fingers here or never really thought that. 
I I didn't. I mean, we would have just gone down if, okay. if that was the case. Sure, but but it was. I personally, I was some days right on the limit. Like you'd be climbing up a pitch, and I'd spend more time trying to warm my fingers and hands while I was climbing than I had spent climbing. Um, you'd do a move or two, and then there'd be five minutes of just moving your fingers to try and get the blood back into them, and then you'd do a couple more moves and and start again. Or yeah, it it was more that it just was more. It gave. I think we all got a lot of respect for the guy spending twenty five or twenty six days on the first ascent because it, like, after nine days up there, I was pretty happy to be done. I remember seeing the guys on the first ascent board in Tasker too. They started out planning to use uh, hammocks. Yeah, <laughs> which, yeah, they, brutal. <laughs> which just seems crazy. <laughs> yeah, apparently they trained in a freezer and tried out all this. They trained systems. in a uh, yeah in they, a freezer they, just to yeah yeah yeah, yeah like in, a, in an abattoir like big cold storage place. I think. Oh, that's brilliant. <laughs> I guess yeah. or mad or both. Um, was there was it? snowy much you guys had pretty regular uh small storms in the afternoons it sounded like yeah, yeah i think if, every day did it snow met i think every day except for one which was amazingly yeah. lucky i think because that might have been the afternoon that you climbed the those rock pitches on the barrier it was just a fluke because <laughs> dan managed <laughs> yeah, to rock we had, climb we were lucky one afternoon time. and it would have been quite difficult mix climbing, I imagine, because when we wrapped down, it was all snow choked. So, yeah. No, we were, we were very lucky also in the sense that we had the, the really the worst and the coldest weather on the first few days of the route. And it, even though as we got higher, it still stayed quite cold, but it didn't get – we didn't really get colder as we got to the summit. It was just – it kind of stayed constant, which was a little bit like encouraging because you we'd suffered a lot on the first two or three days, and then as it as you're getting slowly higher up the mountain, but the suffering's not getting worse. You sort of like you're like, oh well, we're managing. We can keep going, right? Yeah. Um, and so you guys had the uh, wisdom not to bring hammocks. Um, you brought tents and portal edges both, right? Yeah. Um, yeah we, so what? Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, we had just one um, little skin, single skin tent and two two portal edges. Yeah. And what are the the bivy options throughout the route? We found two, like because we were slightly off the line of where Boardman and Tasker were climbing in spots we found two reasonable tent platforms that they didn't use. Um, we, yeah, but otherwise we just were in the portal edges for most nights until one of the nights in a storm, Kim's portal edge, um, the frame of it snapped. So after that night, we left that one behind and then we were down to sort of one portal edge and one tent. And then when we went for the two days up to the summit, we just took the tent and left all the, and sort of cut down to a normal light bag, one, one sleeping bag to share between the three of us, one tent and yeah, sort of normal Alpine style climbing for the last two days. 
So how many days total were you guys on the route? We seven and a half sort of up and one and a half down. That's, that's so a nine, lot. Of, nine, nine days all up. Yeah. That's a lot of days on the wall. Um, we don't have time for like a full blow by blow in this short podcast, but can you give some highlights? Um, what was the quality of the rock like? What was the tenor of the climbing like? Um, I know you guys almost had a tent slip off a ledge. That's exciting. What were your highlights, Matty? Highlights? Oh, yeah. I think one of the most exciting, <laughs> scary moments was getting caught in like a thunderstorm. And it was, I, I was quite worried about all the lightning around and we were basically just sitting ducks. But um, I thought that was quite exciting. <laughs> it was probably one of the worst <laughs> places we could have been on the entire route for that. <laughs> um, yeah, we are unluckily, under, right under the ice field, we got stuck. And it's one of the few places you can get properly avalanched off the wall. This is towards the top? No, That's right in the middle. Yeah, just mm-hmm. above the barrier. Yeah. And, yeah, we got an unexpected, like, morning storm. And we were only, we were nowhere near a safe spot to Bibby. So we'd normally been trying to tuck in under a little overhang with the portal edges each night. So it didn't matter if, if it snowed or anything like that. But this time we were just stuck in the middle of a smooth face with a big two, 300 metre snowfield above us collecting spin drift and kind of dropping it on you. And it, it yeah, for, for several hours while we were trying to get a safe spot to hang a portal edge and get it, get them set up and established, it was quite intense but then most of the days we made it to a good camp spot early and yeah didn't have any kind of dramas like that really and uh what is the rock like up there overall really good but there is definitely some loose rock i would say what do you think (laughs) yeah the first, we were surprised, eh? The first 200 metres of the route was somewhat loose and we were expecting it to be better and then it just turned into really good frozen and solid granite after that. So you guys um, were trying to climb the easier mixed variations as opposed to harder aid that Boardman and Tasker did. Um, what were some of the best pitches on the route? I think... There was there was some like very very high quality mixed and ice climbing on it like you know stuff to kind of modern style like M five eighty degree ice going through little overhanging bulges up a runnel that's you know three feet or a meter wide and very aesthetic very enjoyable climbing and we also had quite these would have been the same rock pitches they would have climbed but it wasn't I guess they were aiding up them where we could kind of French free or free climb a bit of them depending on how how cold it was or how much snow was on the rock. But it wasn't by modern climbing standards particularly difficult, I would say. You know, like it, we probably were climbing 510 style rock climbing. Water ice would be maybe four-ish, you know, like not not crazy hard, like just getting their vertical steep ice. And then M4, M5 kind of mixed climbing and with some easy aid, sort of like C1, C2 or whatever aid climbing. So not. Yeah, not we never aid climbed properly. To, yeah. yeah. 
never pulled out. Yeah. Never pulled out the eighters. No. Um, yeah, I did for sure, but. Oh, okay. Not, yeah, only on one or two pitches. It wasn't um, like doing a sustained eight pitch on LCAT. Gotcha, gotcha. And so um, between the cold, I mean, involved climbing, um, seven and a half days, you guys were moving. How many how many pitches were you guys doing each day, do you think, on average? It's like 40-odd pitch route. So whatever that is, six a day <laughs> average. <laughs> cool. So that also, it sounds like, allowed you to continue your gradual acclimatization as you went up, right? Yeah. 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 And we we specifically, like, we planned to stay in two of the camps, we stayed two nights slow down on the route while we were getting used to being at 6,000 and above 6,000 metres. We kind of took it quite carefully because we didn't want to stuff up the upper part of the climb, really, by, by pushing too hard on any given day. Mm-hmm. And so the I think the day before you guys summited, right, I, in your report, I read that the, the tent almost slid away. Yeah, yeah, we, we had an ice hammock. Um, that we used to dig out the the platform, and then, and then there was kind of a corner that was kind of hanging off a bit, but we kind of didn't really pay too much attention. We just got in and started, <laughs> and, and then gradually, I think our our your feet start <laughs> things started moving. I think during the night, and then I, who. I don't even who noticed. I can't remember. Was Kim, it you, Dan? Kim, Kim woke Kim woke the two of us up and was like, "We're falling off the ledge," and we were both like, "Ah, go back to sleep." <laughs> <laughs> Can't and be bothered. Kind of, Pretty much. Then we actually, after like twenty minutes, we like thought about what that meant, and then you're like, "Oh yeah, it's really serious." If the tip falls off and like, the door goes open and our boots fall out or something like that. Oh, yeah. yeah. Pretty yeah, easy to zip like, up a tent door and just forget the world exists out there, I reckon. So, because <laughs> yeah. we were tied in anyway, but so you're like, oh, who cares if, if we if the door is <laughs> But then, what then when we tried, we tried to re dig it out in the middle of the night and it didn't work. It was freezing we cold at that point, yeah, it was just cold, cold. We just sat there and brewed up for three or four hours and then climbed to the summit, basically. How cold are we talking, do you think? I thought minus 20 to 30 degrees Celsius every day. Oof. Like, like, yeah. like definitely like we've all, we've all done a fair amount of winter climbing. So like winter climbing in the Alps or, you know, in Canada or climbing in, in the pool on a, you know, a cold north face kind of thing. And it was, I'd never, like, yeah. it felt way more difficult than going ice climbing in Canada in minus 30. Like, oh wow! <laughs> it it just yeah, I'd never ever been that cold. Yeah, leading in down pants and down everything that we had, and not even thinking about ever getting hot. <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> like even mid lead, you know, you're still just like cold. <laughs> like we had say five layers of clothing, including two big insulated jackets on every, all day, every day. And like, Whew. Three layers on your legs with down pants, and yeah, sounds brutal. Um, but then on the summit day, you finally got some sun, right? Yeah, on on yeah on the last two pitches, and then like we we summited, 
and then it started snowing by the time we've started to add, you know, like we're two abseils off the summit and it starts snowing again. <laughs> what yeah. was the uh, the summit like? Was it a pretty pretty surreal experience? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you should be more disappointed. Great. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, we were all pretty emotional. I think we were emotional when we realized that we we're actually going to make it there, you know. Um, yeah, because, you know, it just been such a long, long way to go, you know, so many days. It was hard to believe that we we're going to going to get there. So, yeah, like we, I don't, I honestly don't think any of us thought we would summit. We, and some of the days you'd do the day and you'd just be like, what a fucking stupid thing to do. Like, why did we even bother doing those few pitches? But you just did them and it was, and then you're a little bit higher up the wall. Yeah. And you, and the next day, because we were leading in turns, like one person would lead a day, then another person would lead, then another. So you, you didn't have to lead all that much. So, so someone would do their day and then they could kind of forget about it for two days. <laughs> and, Which and isn't necessarily a good thing sometimes. <laughs> when we did actually get to the summit, we were all pretty, yeah, we were definitely pretty emotional. I think we all cried on the top. We were quite happy to be done. Do you guys, as, as a uh, trio, do you guys think you guys functioned as a pretty successful team? Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think we all know each other and trust each other and yeah, get along and, and yeah. it's quite it's quite good terrain to it's different to like cruising up like the I don't know, the north face of the Grand Jurassic or something where you have a lot of you're not hauling a haul bag, you're not dealing with like heaps of kilos of equipment and just like you're not worried about knocking off a loose rock maybe onto someone as you pull the bag up or cutting the rope too much. Or Whereas when you're big walling on a mountain, there's quite a lot to think about. So it's quite nice if you don't have to think about the other people in the team and what they're doing and how they're doing it. So we were lucky in that sense that A, we've all climbed together a lot and then B, we've all done enough days of big walling to not stuff up really and put anyone else at risk. Because it'd be quite easy to just cut the rope by hauling the bag over a loose rock in the wrong spot, or yeah, just do some a little dumb thing like fix the rope in the wrong way, and then it cuts as someone jumas up it, or yeah, there's all sorts of silly little things that could stuff it up for you. And off that, uh, seems like three people was was a good move for this route, being able to rotate your leading days and have someone kind of tending camp while the other two were focused on pushing the route, yeah? Yeah, yeah. I, I think we calculated that we spent like 40 hours brewing water over the whole wow. time. Like, so so it's really handy having like two guys leading a pit and then, you know, you can just be on the ledge just, and we climb a lot with thermoses, so just filling thermoses with with hot water or warm water, yeah. So saves a lot of time in the day because it takes a long time to get going, especially when it, you, you're not sleeping in a tent. You know, you've got to pack up a portal edge and everything's hanging and, you know, you've got to be careful not to drop stuff. And 
yeah, so three is definitely a good advantage in with that kind yeah, of stuff. It really did work well to like we we generally speaking tried to camp early each day. So by midday before the storm would arrive, we would have set up the camp for the next day, and then we might fix our three. We had three ropes, so we had a lead rope and a haul rope and a spare lead rope. And then we'd fix those next three pitches above camp. And while that was happening, someone setting up the portal edges, brewing up all the water. And we, yeah, we had like six thermoses with us for that we could make all our hot water in the afternoon. And then we'd just have it ready for the next morning, ready to go. So you're not having to do a lot of that brewing up or kind of admin work of being on a wall in the in the morning when it's the coldest part of the day. So did you descend the route? By the same ascent route, yeah, yeah. So we, we and that we we'd taken a lot of extra rock gear, thinking we would need to leave a heap of rack behind to wrap down the the wall. And at probably half the route, we were able to V thread. So we we did end up leaving a bunch of wires and cams and stuff, but we was we got away with a lot less than we thought we'd have to, which was pretty cool. So. Yeah, there's a lot, lot more ice on the wall than we, than we thought, basically. And then getting back to the ground, um, you guys thought you were all done, and then you realized you had to hump back however much gear you had left at Advanced Base Camp, right? <laughs> That's got to be brutal. Oh, so brutal. <laughs> yeah, I think Dan had two 50-liter packs strapped to each other. Kim had a 150-litre haul bag with a drum tied to empty drum tied to the top of it, and I had a 70-litre bag with a 50-litre bag strapped to it, and then a portal edge on top. <laughs> so it was there were huge loads coming down, but we just didn't want to go back up, so we just sucked it up. Yeah, yeah, yeah it was. I think that was the hardest walk of my life it was horrendous um coming back after a massive expedition like this um it it can be pretty surreal um what's it like adjusting back to normal life um what is normal life for you guys what do you do you know how's it going (laughs) oh it's it's all right i was looking forward to coming home i've got a little one-year-old daughter here, so it was cool to come home <laughs> and, and my wife, see my wife. Um, unfortunately, one downside of going to the Himalayas for me in the spring is you come back home to winter um, and basically <laughs> it's been about one degree and 50k an hour winds and I'm an arborist, so I'm up in trees every day, so it's been a bit grim <laughs> i haven't enjoyed that side of things that's for sure but other than that it's been good <laughs> yeah i like i found the adjustment after this trip pretty hard because i think we we did hammer our bodies quite a bit so i was surprised this time coming back how much strength and kind of fitness i'd lost really on the trip so i've been back for a month and i'm just slowly like i'm i've still got one foot with a few numb toes but they're coming good and then, yeah, I, I yeah, I think it was, it was quite a hard, hard re, I don't know what you'd call it, reintegration after the trip for me. And I think, yeah, I've got a, a young young son as well and partner here, wife and Chamonix, and 
yeah, I think she always she always complains that the uh, the first week after the expedition is quite hard while you're readjusting to family life and like having kids running around the house and heaps of noise after you've been in a quiet tent on the side of a mountain. But um, but it's good. We're sort of like back into it now and just back to normal life in Chamonix, climbing and yeah, trying to get fit again in the summer. Either of you, uh, you know, there have been uh, multiple books at this point about uh, Chang'abong. Either of you itching to to write a book about it? <laughs> Second Ascent books, probably not as popular as First Ascent. Books. <laughs> yeah, probably not. <laughs> and, like, to be honest, we didn't have much to say after the trip because it, like, even though it was hard work, it just, like, we went, you know, what do you write about? You go there, you climb it, it all went quite well. Mm-hmm. And you come home and it's like, well, it's done now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, there, was, there was no great, no great drama or story or like. Yeah. No one had to cut off their own arm or anything like that. <laughs> I mean, I guess that's the, that's the hallmark of a, of a really, really good successful ascent. So congratulations again. It's a, it's really exciting to see this route repeated. Thanks. Cheers, Michael. Thanks for that. Thanks to Dan, Matt, and Michael for sharing the story of this climb. And thanks also to my old friend, Lindsey Griffin, who holds more climbing history inside his head than the collection of AAJs sitting on my desk. The Cutting Edge is presented by Hilleberg the Tentmaker. Learn about the full line of bomb-proof, versatile tents at hilleberg.com, where you can order their 88-page catalog, The Tent Handbook. We get additional support from Polar Tech, Gnarly Nutrition, and Loa Boots. The Cutting Edge is produced by the American Alpine Club. Until next time, this is Dougal McDonald wishing you happy climbs.